Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aiden Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hello, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. Now, this week, we are celebrating a very important anniversary, and that is the 80th anniversary of the Doolittle Raid. So this was on actually April the 18th. So this was a few weeks ago, but we weren't actually recording that night. We had um, a few crazy things in a row, a couple of cadet events in a row, and that's why we haven't uh, been recording in quite a while. However, we think it would be uh, a real shame if we didn't touch on this historic mission. So it's been 80 years um, and it truly is an incredible story. So we're very excited to tell you. So just to sort of, um, uh, give a brief overview before we get started on what the Doolittle Raid was. It was um, sort of like a revenge act by the United States for Pearl Harbor. And what they did was they loaded up uh, 16 B-25 medium bombers onto an aircraft carrier. And let me tell you, B-25s were not designed whatsoever to fly off of aircraft carriers. So this was a massive gamble. Yet somehow they were able to take these planes, they sailed really close to the coast of Japan and they flew them off of these tiny aircraft carriers and they went and they dropped bombs on Tokyo and that was their revenge for Pearl Harbor and it was absolutely insane and it was probably one of the boldest and one of the most daring missions in aviation history. I'm honestly just surprised they were able to get medium bombers to take off of aircraft carriers in the first place. Yeah it's truly incredible and they had to do a lot of preparation for this. Like, um, there was a movie a long time ago I saw, I think it was um, Pearl Harbor from, you know, 2001, where um, they actually showed how they're doing the preparations for that, where they had the B-25s practicing on an actual runway, and they just painted uh, a line where the end of the aircraft carrier would be. And for weeks, they had pilots training on how to take off in super short distances. So this isn't the sort of thing that you just throw together overnight. This was well thought out. And it was absolutely insane. So just before we start uh, talking about the raid itself, we need to have a look at the state of the Pacific theater in the early months of World War II. So this is really going to explain why the raid took place and how important it was. So following the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, the US Pacific fleet was completely devastated. Thousands of sailors, soldiers, and airmen had been killed and 18 of the U.S. Navy's most powerful ships had been sunk. However, by a stroke of luck, their three aircraft carriers had been at sea that day, and so were spared. In fact, Admiral Yamamoto, who was the uh, mastermind behind Pearl Harbor, uh, he later said that not getting the three aircraft carriers, not sinking them, was his greatest regret in life, and it was likely why they lost the war. He said that very, very early on, so he clearly he could predict what was coming. He knew that he had made a massive mistake. In fact, the uh, entire thinking behind Pearl Harbor was that if they could uh, damage the US Navy enough, they might just be able to force them into negotiating before the entire war had begun. But by uh, not hitting their aircraft carriers, they um, they had really left the United States most powerful weapons behind. And so they sort of shot themselves in the foot with that one. However, it still was an absolutely devastating attack. And following it, the US Navy, their morale was at an all-time low, as it would be expected to be. I mean, 
if you thought you were in the most powerful Navy in the world, you are on some of the most powerful warships in the world, and all of a sudden these tiny little airplanes are able to uh, sink 18 of them and kill thousands of your comrades, yeah, you're going to be demoralized. And what a lot of the uh, high-ranking officials in the U.S. Navy wanted to do was um, focus on protecting the remaining ships. So they wanted to keep pretty much the entire Navy in port and wait for America's wartime production to kick in. So during World War II, a main advantage that uh, America had over Germany and Japan was the fact that it was so heavily industrialized and it had so many resources that it could essentially sit back and just start mass producing things. So even though the Japanese had a much larger Navy in the early stages of the war, they knew that in just a couple months, they could, um, they could ramp up their production. They could completely shift from uh, a civilian economy right over to a uh, war economy. And by that time, they would be able to start outproducing the Japanese. So that's what a lot of uh, very high-ranking um, high officials in the U.S. military wanted to do. And this did sort of make sense as they were hopelessly outnumbered by the Imperial Japanese Navy. Japan had 10 aircraft carriers in the Pacific, U.S. only had three. Japan had nine functional battleships. America had none after Pearl Harbor. And Japan also had more cruisers, fighters, and bombers, not to mention that most of their equipment was far more modern than a lot of the American equipment. So following the end of World War I, uh, America tried to de-arm a lot. They passed a lot of uh, neutrality, um, a lot of neutrality laws, and uh, a lot of laws that would prevent another world war or prevent their um, involvement in another world war. The problem with this, though, was that it left them really far behind in terms of technology. So a lot of their equipment might have been good for the 1920s and the mid 1930s. However, by the time the 40s rolled around, they were completely behind the Japanese. So despite all of these facts, President Roosevelt and Admiral Nimitz, who was the new commander of the Pacific Fleet, intended to strike back to show the Japanese that they had not been defeated. So pretty much every high-ranking military official told Roosevelt that, no, we need to hold the line, we need to stay exactly where we are, and we just need to wait this out. But Roosevelt thought that, first of all, this is not good for our morale, which is absolutely right. If you just sit there not doing anything, people get restless, they get nervous. And also he said, what kind of message does this show to the Japanese that if you punch us, we're just going to stay down? He said that uh, we need to get back up and we need to start throwing hits back at the Japanese. And that's specifically why he hired uh, Admiral Nimitz and appointed him to be the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. First of all, because he knew he was one of the few commanders who would uh, be honest with him and would tell him uh, when things were unreasonable and when things looked unwinnable, but also because he was very determined. He was not the kind of guy who would just sit around and wait for someone to attack him. He wanted to go right back. So on February 1st, 1942, the U.S. Pacific Fleet attacked the Japanese bases in the Marshall Islands. This battle was good for U.S. morale, and it shocked the Japanese, who had assumed that they would keep their fleet in port and not risk losing any more ships. However, despite this victory, Nimitz and Roosevelt wanted to do something bigger, something that would hit the Japanese as hard as Pearl Harbor had hit them. And with this, they started planning one of the most daring missions in all of aviation history. So on April 18, 1942, a task force composed of aircraft carriers USS Enterprise and USS Hornet approached the Japanese mainland. 
Crews on the American ships were stunned to see that there were 16 U.S. Army B-25 medium bombers sitting on the deck of the Hornet. It was assumed that these planes were too heavy to take off from an aircraft carrier, and some sailors even started making bets as to whether they could make it off the deck or not. What they didn't know was that this operation had been in the planning stages for months. Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle was assigned to be the commander of this mission, as he was one of the best pilots in the U.S. military. Their plan was to sail within 300 miles of the Japanese coast before taking off and flying to several targets, including Tokyo. After this, they would then fly to Free China where they'd meet up with local resistance groups. However, things did not go to plan when the task force was spotted by a Japanese patrol boat 650 miles off the coast. Admiral Halsey ordered the bombers to take off early, knowing this extra distance meant this was likely a one-way mission. However, the Navy could not afford to lose its carriers. So yeah, Admiral Halsey, who was the uh, commander of this task force, was put in a rather hard position. He knew that by uh, sending these boys up when they're 650 miles off the coast, they would not have enough fuel to reach their destinations in China. So it would likely be a suicide mission. It'd be one way. However, he had to think of the bigger picture and he had to think about the thousands of sailors on board these aircraft carriers and how much more damage the Japanese could do if they were taken out. So with that, he gave the very hard call that these boys had to take off immediately. So in order to save as much fuel as possible to give them a better shot of making it to China, most of the guns and any unessential equipment was removed from the B-25s. So one big thing about uh, American bombers during World War II, uh, like one of their main advantages is that they're very well armed. A lot of times they could take care of themselves all the way to a target. And if they're jumped on by enemy fighters, they could easily fend them off. However, in this case, they're gonna have to completely scrap all of those weapons. And a lot of bombers, they usually only left one or two guns for the uh, rare event that they would come in uh, contact with any Japanese zeros. However, it was figured that uh, actually making it to Japan and making it onto China was far more important than fending off fighters. So with that, they took off a large chunk of the equipment actually, large chunk of uh, pretty much anything that didn't help it fly, they started stripping off of these bombers and they had to do it extremely quickly. So before they took off, Doolittle spoke to his men, saying that he was 45 years old and had lived a good life, and that if his aircraft was badly damaged, he intended to have his crew bail out and then crash into the largest military target he could find, but that he didn't expect anyone else to do so. So pretty much what he was saying here was that um, he did not want to be taken prisoner by the Japanese. He intended to uh, either complete the mission successfully or die trying, but that he wanted his men to survive and make it home because the large majority of his men were in their uh, late teens and early 20s. So they were just young men with uh, the rest of their lives ahead of them. So he wanted them to survive. He said he had no intention of surviving if he was shot down. He wanted to take down as many enemies as he could. So at this point, he also offered that if anyone wanted to back out, they could do so. And with this looking like a suicide mission, you might think that some step back. However, no one took him up on this offer and all of the crews boarded their planes. I just have to say props to these guys for being some of the bravest guys probably in history, knowing that you will likely not return from this mission and yet they went ahead to do it anyway. That is something that is absolutely amazing and I think we can uh, all commend. 
Absolutely. Plus comes the fact that if you've got a captain like like Doolittle, chances are they're going to be a very inspiring figure. You know, like it would be much easier to convince these guys to go with them than than say pretty much any Soviet general. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess the Soviets' sort of uh, tactic was pretty much uh, go forward, or uh, you're getting court-martialed and sent to a gulag, which wasn't really the best leadership style. Yeah, who would have guessed the throw people at it until it stops being a problem solution doesn't really work. Yeah, exactly. All right, moving on from Soviet gulags, though, let's get back to the uh, actual Doolittle raid. We will talk about Soviet gulags in a little bit, though, because those uh, come back to be relevant. Right, so Doolittle was the first to take off from the uh, aircraft carrier, and he made it off the deck with no room to spare. So this is another thing that I admire about him. He was willing to lead his men into battle. Um, you hear a lot of stories about um, like wars in past where um, you'll have like the commander just sitting all the way at the back giving orders, not uh, caring about his men, but Doolittle was a guy who really did care about the men under his command. He really had the attitude that he was not willing to order them into anything that he wouldn't do himself. So again, that's something that I really admire about this guy. He is totally awesome. And yeah, he was the first one to fly into battle. Total legend. So after the rest of the bombers were airborne, they formed up and they flew for Tokyo and several other Japanese cities. So as they flew over, the Japanese people were shocked to see American aircraft flying uncontested over their skies. This is honestly something they really hadn't trained for too much. Um, at this point, they didn't really have uh, too many air defense systems in place solely because they hadn't expected this. For quite a few hundred miles around Japan, all of the islands had been conquered by them. And a lot of the territories that were nearby had been captured by Japanese forces. So they really didn't think there was anywhere a bomber could be launched from. However, that's the really great thing about an aircraft carrier. You can sail it wherever you want. It is not tied down and it's really hard to capture. Plus, there's the whole fact that if you haven't been invaded since 1281, you tend to have a sense of that you're pretty infallible. Exactly, yeah. Um, and that is one really sort of interesting thing to note here. Uh, in some accounts, Doolittle has been, uh, it's been said that he, in his final speech to his men, he actually said that, that if we strike this, we'll be the first, um, we'll be the first enemies in like the history of modern Japan to actually hit their home islands. Or like we'll be the first people in a couple centuries to actually hit their home islands, which is quite impressive. So the Americans had caught the Japanese completely by surprise and they started dropping incendiary bombs on factories and shipyards. The bombing of the shipyard would even put a Japanese carrier out of action for more than four months. And that's going to be uh, really important later on because uh, just a few months after this was the vital Battle of Midway, where the Japanese did lose quite a lot of aircraft carriers. And so if they had this extra one, they might have been able to uh, turn the tide of that battle. However, the fact that this was put out of action, it likely tipped that battle in a different way. So that's very important. Now, following the raid, the aircraft flew on to China. However, most of them ran out of fuel before they could make it to the airfield. Doolittle and his crew, along with the other crews from uh, most of the other bombers, bailed out and were scattered over the Chinese countryside. 
Doolittle himself found shelter in a farmhouse for the night. And the next morning, he was reunited with his crew with the help of Chinese guerrilla fighters. Over the next few days, with the help of many Chinese civilians, 54 of the airmen would be reunited. However, not all of the crews were so lucky. One of the aircraft had landed in Vladivostok, and the crew was interned by the Soviet Union until their eventual escape. Three airmen died during the raid, and eight were captured by the Japanese. Of these eight, three were executed, and a fourth would later die in captivity. So um, one sort of interesting thing is that um, uh, they had a tradition after the war where every single man of the uh, Doolittle Raid would get together on the anniversary and they would all uh, make a toast to the ones who had not made it through the, um, through the raid. And they kept doing this every year and every time that one of the men in that raid passed away. And um, I believe it was just a year or two ago that the final member of the Doolittle Raid died. Yeah, it was so, uh, 2019. 2019, yeah, so about three years ago. But I got to be honest, that's always something uh, that I found a little bit sad, that like, the possibility of being the last guy there, like seeing all your yeah. friends pass on that would be something that's very sad. However, it's also nice to think about the fact that they would, from time to time, get together and reminisce about the raid and reminisce about other stories from the war. Um, so that is, I know that's a tradition in uh, a lot of units, actually, but I think I should just uh, highlight it here because it was a, a pretty big tradition with the Doolittle Raid. Uh, something about the, the, the airmen that were captured at Vladivostok, the, the act, the, the, their escape was actually kind of interesting because they escaped over to Allied-controlled Iran and at that point, the Soviet Union was kind of allied, but not really with the United States. So they basically said, okay, just leave and we'll say you escaped. See, that's interesting. I didn't know that because, um, you know, whenever I read that, I was always confused. Like, wait, weren't the Soviets and the Americans on the same side here? Why were they interned? But yeah, like if they, um, if they essentially let them go, but made it look like they escaped, that does make a lot more sense than just trying to hold them hostage there. Right. I mean, the Soviet Union there, they did some pretty screwed up things and there were some uh, pretty messed up people in the Soviet military. But still, you'd think that they would want to help out their allies when they're attacking an enemy. Right. Pretty sure the main reason that they interned those guys to begin with was so that they didn't piss off Japan any further. Uh, yeah, OK, that might have been it, because, yeah, I guess the Soviet Union and Japan weren't really at war in the early 40s. Like they had some skirmishes along the border, but nothing too serious. Uh, but yeah, their declaration of war definitely did come a lot later. So I guess if the Soviets wanted to maintain that relationship with uh, the Japanese, they, they might have wanted to make it look like uh, they'd been holding the Americans prisoner. But yeah, it makes a lot more sense that they pretty much let them go, but then posed it to look like an escape. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, after the battle of Tsushima, after the battle of Tsushima, I figured the Russians figured part of the best idea to mess with Japan anymore. Yeah, that that is a good point. All right, so moving on, let's now talk uh, a little bit about what the impacts of the Doolittle raid were. So, following his return to the U.S., James Doolittle was hailed as a hero and received a promotion to brigadier general and the Medal of Honor from President Roosevelt. 
Now, the Japanese military and people alike were caught completely off guard by this attack. As we said earlier, no foreign power for centuries had been able to attack the Japanese homeland. And with all the recent victories, the public had been led to believe that they had absolutely nothing to fear and that they were completely winning the war. This was made worse by the fact that some of the bombs had actually landed on the grounds of the emperor's palace. So this raid led the Japanese military to the conclusion that they had underestimated the US Navy and the threat posed by their carriers. This led the uh, IJN to carry out their attack on Midway, which was just a few months later. And anyone who's ever done research on the Battle of Midway knows that this was an absolute disaster for the Japanese Navy. And uh, a big part of why it was such uh, a disaster was because uh, they sort of rushed into it. They really wanted to take out the American carriers and they overlooked a few key details. And in the end, they ended up getting, um, they ended up getting destroyed by the US Navy. And this would be a battle from which they would never recover as they would lose four aircraft carriers. And um, as you said a little earlier, aircraft carriers are not really easy things to build. It takes years upon years to build an aircraft carrier and not only that, but the experience of the pilots and the flight crews and the engineers and all of that, that was lost. And that's not something that you can just get overnight. That's something that has to be built up over years and years. The Doolittle Raid, its main purpose was less uh, to, to actually attack Japan and more to tell Japan, don't mess around with a country whose main naval doctrine is to produce more ships than there is water. Exactly, yeah. So really when they were planning this, I think um, a lot of the U.S. military officials knew that this was not going to be practical at all. It wasn't really going to be effective. The entire point of it was to show Japan that if you punch us, we're just going to get right back up and send a punch your way. And that really was the whole point. FDR his entire strategy throughout the war was you can knock us down, but America will always win because we're going to get right back up and keep fighting. And I think, again, that's something that can be truly admired in a leader, someone who is determined and someone who refuses to ever surrender. So um, just before we finish, uh, Paul or McCall, do you guys have any uh, final comments at all about the Doolittle Raid or about the war in the Pacific at all? Yes, I do. So for me, this is actually the first time I've really ever heard about this. And um, honestly, learning everything about this was really interesting. And this is probably one of the, in my opinion, one of the most interesting episodes we have done. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed um, taking the time and learning about this. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, for anyone who's interested in uh, the Doolittle Raid, there's tons of YouTube videos, tons of articles you can read online. Or if anyone here uh, has ever heard of the movie Midway, that was released in 2019, and they do a very good job showing the Doolittle Raid in uh, one of the scenes early on in the movie. So I would highly recommend you go and watch that movie. It is very good. Not just for the Doolittle Raid, but there is a lot of awesome stuff in it. All right, so uh, Sergeant Paul, uh, you said you had a comment on the Do Little Raid too. Um, no, and um, no, that's just I've said everything I wanted to say as well. All right, thank you then. So, with all that said, that is just about our time for tonight. So, we'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Good night, everyone. everyone.
Goodbye, everyone.